You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Naveed Akbar. He's a postdoc at Oxford University, and he's studying uh, extracellular vesicles as they relate to metabolic disease. And it looks like uh, every cell in the known world here in the, or in the human body uh, releases uh, extracellular vesicles. So, Naveed, thanks for coming. Well, let's talk about your research. How are you doing? So, thank you for having me. So, we have a, a, an interest um, as a group um, actually in cardiovascular disease. So diseases that affect the heart, narrowing of the blood vessels, a process called atherosclerosis, how that leads to heart attacks and strokes. And if you are unfortunate enough to suffer one of these diseases, a lot of the patients have a comorbidity or, an exist, or pre-existing disease, which can enhance the prevalence of suffering a heart attack or a stroke. And the most common one is, is diabetes. And that's where our interest in metabolic disease comes from. So diabetes significantly increases the risk of suffering a heart attack or a stroke as much as seven to 10 times. And what we don't really understand is, is why. Are you, um, so you're studying atherosclerosis. Uh, you're studying the plaques themselves that form or like what aspects of it are you studying and how are you attempting to tie it to uh, diabetes? So... So we know that the process of atherosclerosis, it's well described. We know that it, in humans, it forms over decades. So this is a progressive fatty buildup within the walls of arteries. And we know the risk factors that contribute to this. So having too much dietary fat, low levels of exercise, smoking and alcohol can all contribute to the buildup of this fatty plaque within the walls of blood vessels. What we don't understand is why are the diet diabetic patients are more likely to get fattier plaques and why they're more aggressive, why they're more prone to rupture. And that's what will give you a stroke or if it happens in the heart, a heart attack. And what are the processes that are driving this? One of the things that we are interested in is how the immune system responds to damage within the blood vessel and how immune cells accumulate within the wall of the artery to drive this fatty disease. So what are uh, atherosclerotic plaques made of? What are they constituted for diabetic and non-diabetic people? What's the structure look like? So if you you look at a healthy blood vessel, you should have a nice open lumen. So the inside of the arteries or blood can flow freely. And what happens over time is that you get the accumulation of fat. Uh, So that's from our diet. And this can build up mainly in the walls of the artery where the arteries either split or, or, or they're bifurcated. And what happens is this fat, as it becomes trapped, is then exposed to other metabolites within our blood, and it can change or it becomes oxidized. 
And as it becomes oxidized, it can cause damage to some of the endothelial cells, which line the inside of the blood vessel. And this then triggers an inflammation cascade, which rec recruits immune cells. And in atherosclerosis, the most important immune cells are monocytes, which enter from the circulation, that enter into the wall of the blood vessel. And here they try to engulf the fat that's accumulating. And as they try to do this, they try to ingest quite a lot of it, and it causes them to die or to apoptose. And this, in turn, leads to another set of events which recruits more immune cells. So it's a progressive inflammatory response, which is exacerbated by itself. It's, it's self-perpetuating. So I'm picturing a branch of a, of a vessel in my mind. Does it tend to happen uh, upstream of a branching or downstream in, a, you know, in one or both of the branches, preferentially? Okay. Atherosclerosis is a focal disease. It's more common at the branches. So this is why it's common in coming out of the heart. It's people are likely to get disease in the arteries in their necks, in the arteries in their legs. So as it's coming down through your abdomen, passing it into your, your femoral artery in your leg. One of the observations that we have made, um, some work that we're working on at the moment, is why do some people get atherosclerotic disease in the neck? And why do people get it in the legs? Uh, and why don't people get both? You mean it's preferential? Like uh, someone that uh, has it in the neck will tend to accumulate more plaques in the neck and not in the legs? Or what do you mean? And so we either get people who get disease in the neck or they get it in the legs. They huh. don't see will, they, will they get multiple plaques in the legs and multiple in the, or multiple in the neck? Or uh, is it just one on one? Are you only it's, looking at the one that you know, hospitalizes them? Essentially, yes. So atherosclerotic disease is a, a silent disease. So most people will have some form of atherosclerotic disease throughout their lifetime. And up until it gives you a problem or clinical symptom, that they go undiagnosed. Okay. Um, how do uh, extracellular vesicles play into this? Do you think that this is a, um, some form of intentional or unintentional niche construction in the, in the vessel walls and that's attracting or sending out vesicles to attract other things? Or I mean, do you think at some stage in the, in the building of the plaque, there's uh, EVs involved? So very early on in blood vessel dysfunction, which we, which we term as endothelial dysfunction. So these endothelial cells, uh, which form a single layer of cells within inside the wall of your blood vessels, are very sensitive to changes within our diet or, or changes in the environment. And they can undergo activation. As they undergo activation, they, we have shown that they can produce and release extracellular vesicles, which can attract immune cells, and they can change the behavior of immune cells. So the way that the immune cell is moving, the type of proteins the immune cell is expressing on its surface, is it more likely to be attracted to the blood vessel? And we've shown that once the endothelium is activated, it changes the behavior of the immune cells to recruit them to the vessel wall. Okay, so it, I guess one theory could be is that the uh, right the vessel walls now appear to be uh, inflamed or you know in need of an immune response in an attempt to clear the you know the the problem that's going on. So they attract immune cells that I guess they're trying to uh, to clear the problem there. But in doing so, what they die themselves and pile up and obstruct the artery. That's that's completely correct. Yes. So it's like a death trap for immune cells, it sounds like, right? Like a quicksand. It's a, a death trap for... Um, so our immune cells are wonderful. Uh, they respond very rapidly. 
uh, they can they they arrive at the site of injury, whether that's the inside of a blood vessel or a cut on your finger, within a couple of minutes, a couple of hours. And their job is there to protect the tissue, to help the tissue stabilize. But the way that they respond, whether you're having a buildup of some fat in the wall of your artery, or whether you're having a heart attack, or whether you've had you've cut your finger and you have some bacteria there, is exactly the same way. So unfortunately, if that happens in your heart, it's a bit of a disproportionate response. It's not the same as being infected by bacteria, where you might want to completely destroy that bacteria and stop it spreading in your system. So what happens if you have a given uh, patch of endothelium that has attracted immune cells? The immune cells have come there, tried to clear it. You know, maybe they've died themselves. Maybe now they're covering over the, uh, the damaged endothelial cells. But are the immune cells themselves that have, I guess, you know, died on the, at the spot, are they now altering the surface structure of it to continual, continually attract more and more immune cells to pile on? Is that what's happening? Like, how does the plaque grow? So the plaque will grow over time by the accumulation of immune cells. So if we look at atherosclerotic disease, it's this initial buildup of fatty deposits, which attracts monocytes. These enter the wall of the artery and they differentiate into cells called macrophages. And then these macrophages are trying to phagocytose or to ingest the lipid that's there. And as they take on the lipid, we call them foam cells, or they have this very characteristic feature where they're filled with lipid but they're still a macrophage and as they ingest more and more lipid they can push themselves into apoptosis and as they enter the apoptosis they're also releasing other proteins which are attracting more monocytes to the plaque so it's a gradual buildup of necrotic tissue within the wall of the artery as well as influx of more lipid and what these immune cells also do is they try to stabilize the plaque or stabilize the blood vessel as it's growing it's likely to become dysfunctional or prone to rupture so what the immune cells can do is they can put down proteins which stabilize the blood vessel and this can make the blood vessel less responsive in terms of its ability to open and close and it can obstruct the lumen of the blood vessel where the blood is passing through. And so this then, if it happens in an organ, restricts the amount of nutrients that can get to the tissues within that organ. It's, you know, I'm, I'm picturing um, the growth of a plaque in you know, an artery in my mind. So I would think ahead of the plaque or behind the plaque or after it, I mean, the flow characteristics of the vessel would change, maybe become more turbulent. Maybe they create like a recirculating area or a dead zone in terms of the flow. And that might, you know, change the microenvironment around the plaque and make it more conducive to growing. I don't know. Has that been studied? So there are flow patterns which are present in blood vessels. And some flow patterns are what we call atheroprotective. And this is called laminar flow. So when blood flow is in a straight line and it's washing over the endothelial cells on the inside of the blood vessel, this is what we call atheroprotective. But at bends or bifurcations where the blood vessel is branching off, flow can become disrupted. And as the flow becomes disrupted, it in itself can activate the endothelial cells to make them more atherosclerotic or prone to atherosclerosis, I should say. Okay, makes sense. And have, uh, have these plaques been, you know, been, uh, been looked at? Has the tissue been cut into and analyzed and the structure and the constituents looked at? And if so, what are they made of? And what do they look like? The plaques themselves? Yeah, the plaques themselves, yeah. 
So here in Oxford, we're very fortunate. We work with, very closely with the surgical teams. So as patients are presenting with some clinical symptoms, and if they're required to have one of the plaques removed, for example, from their neck, which is called a, a carotid endorectomy, is the surgical procedure, we can then get access to this plaque, which has been removed from the neck of a patient. And what we're able to do then is to take the, the tissue and to look at it microscopically. We can then start asking questions, is there a lot of lipid there? Or has the lipid already resolved? And now are we only seeing lots of connective tissue, like lots of collagen, lots of fiber, which is the progressive buildup of or stabilizing the plaque? And what type of cell types are there now? Are we seeing lots of macrophages or are we seeing lots of monocytes? And macrophages are a particularly interesting cell because they can serve two purposes. They can be pro-inflammatory, where they're exacerbating a condition or a pro-inflammatory environment, or they can be anti-inflammatory where they're tissue reparative. And so we experimentally can push these cells into these polarized states. Within the body, it's slightly more complex because there's many signals coming from the microenvironment and the other cells that they're surrounded by. But what we're interested to know is what are the signals that are keeping them in a pro-inflammatory state? And can we therapeutically push them into an M2 anti-inflammatory state, which is associated with tissue healing, tissue repair, and a reduction in the size of the atherosclerotic lesion? Left to their own devices, uh, has it been observed that anyone's atherosclerotic lesions uh, reduce on their own, or do they only stop growing or grow? There is evidence to show that you can get a reduction in atherosclerotic lesion size. And so one of the most popular um, forms of therapeutic intervention is statins. So statins are drugs that affect cholesterol biosynthesis in the body. And if patients go on to statins, we and others have shown that you can get a reduction in the size of the lesion. Really? So the statins actually reduce the size of these lesions? Huh. Yes. Yeah, so we, we're... Yes, we were able to show in a, a clinical study using some MRI imaging where we can non-invasively assess the amount of lipid that's in the blood vessels of patients in their neck. And then we're able to put them on to statin and then measure a couple of months later a reduction in the amount of lipid that is now present in those vessels. Well, is there a reduction in the amount of lipid because the macrophages have gobbled it up? and you know, turned it into more collagen and fiber? Or is it uh, that the, the size of the lesion is, is smaller itself? The size of the lesion is smaller, but we, unfortunately, we can't do the before and after at a microscopic level because the vessel is still in the patient's neck. But how would you non-invasively look at its structure and, and see how much lipid there is? Maybe there's a clue there. So non-invasively, we use MRI imaging, and MRI imaging uh, looks at magnetic properties of tissue. And here in Oxford, over the past couple of years, there's our group have developed a method to detect lipid using MRI imaging. Oh, okay. So again, if you see a reduction due to statins, you could still use the MRI and say, hmm, less lipid there, right? In the imaging? Yes, because the lipid itself has a slightly different um, signal on the MRI in comparison to the surrounding cellular tissue. I see. Okay. Um, do you think that there's a uh, microbial attachment to these plaques? Has anyone studied that, whether they have their own little, you know, microbiome in their microenvironment? I've not come across um, 
any work that's specifically looking at whether there are bacterial components within the walls of the arteries. Um, and I'm not sure there would be because you would then risk essentially septicemia. So how did the bacteria get into the wall of an artery, first of all? And then if it's there, it's growing and proliferating. If it was to ever get out of the plaque and in contact with the systemic circulation, that would be clinically potentially lethal. Well, I mean, the reason why I ask is that from, you know, from what I know, not, not nearly as much as you, but um, some of the bacteria that are in the mouth um, migrate into the bloodstream and then they, they seem to be responsible for uh, creating some of these plaques or associated with them in some way. I don't know how, but... Uh... Oh, so there is some data to show that if you have a gingivitis, so if you have um, bleeding gums or inflammation, of, of, of the mouth and the gums, the individuals who have this um, are, at, are more prevalent to develop cardiovascular disease, to have uh, atherosclerotic lesions. But what the full link between that is, uh, is, is not fully understood. Okay. So what, uh, what in particular is your research involved? What are you trying to figure out very specifically? Okay, so I look at how the immune system is activated following a heart attack. So we know that a heart attack is the outcome of a blockage in a blood vessel supplying the heart. Patient gets chest pain, call an ambulance, they come in, and most often they'll be fitted with a stent, which will reopen the blocked blood vessel and restore blood flow to the injured heart. What we and others are interested in is the damage that happens after this initial clinical therapy, where the immune system activates, it mobilizes into the peripheral blood, and from the peripheral blood, it's able to infiltrate the damaged heart. And as it enters the damaged heart, it detects that the environment has been hostile, that it's been low in oxygen, that a number of cells have been damaged and now are injured or dying. And it responds to this in a pro-inflammatory manner. And as it does this, it starts releasing a number of proteins and what we call reactive oxygen species, and it causes further damage or further inflammatory damage to the already injured heart. So what my work is looking at is how is the immune system recruited to the injured heart? What are the signals that control it? Can we use those signals in terms of diagnosis? Can we make new diagnostic tests to determine whether a patient's heart is going to heal poorly or heal well? And as we uncover some of this biology, are there any new therapeutic opportunities for us to modulate the immune response? Are we able to perturb some of this pro-inflammatory damaging inflammation signaling and induce some of the reparative M2-associated macrophage signaling for the heat to heal the myocardium? So have you looked at the, um, the site of the stent? Like what, what happens if you have a, a plaque and they put in a stent? How are they clearing away the, uh, the plaque? Where is the stent placed, you know, upstream, downstream, or at the side of the plaque? And then, you know, what happens after? So that's not something that um, I've looked at. So I'm a basic biologist myself. Uh, so we do have clinical teams here who are interested in the patient side of this. So there's different types of stents that you can get uh, for treating patients. Some of them can contain drugs. And there's a number of studies and a number of groups that look into this. But what I've been looking at or asking questions about is how is the ischemic heart signaling with these immune cells and where do the immune cells come from? So once you have a heart attack, whether you have a stroke, you get a, a change in the number of immune cells in your peripheral blood. And so if we look at two cell types in particular, 
The first one is neutrophils. So if you have any damage to an organ or to a tissue, the first cells to arrive within the first couple of minutes to hours will be neutrophils. And what these cells do is that they infiltrate the injured tissue and they release a number of inflammatory mediators, which then causes the recruitment of other immune cells, including the monocytes I mentioned earlier. And we get this what, cascade. What the, um, yeah, what do the inflammatory mediators look like? Are those exosomes or EVs? So that's, where my, yes, so that's where my interest in exosomes has come from. We, we were wondering how can the heart signal with reserves of immune cells in other parts of the body? And what we didn't fully understand, how can an organ like the heart signal to another organ like the spleen which has a backup or reserve of immune cells like monocytes to cause their movement from the spleen into peripheral blood and to prepare them for recruitment to the injured heart. So you're not only seeing EVs, but you're seeing that they're uh, cell type specific, right? The targets? Yes. So what we've looked at in our patients who are experiencing a heart attack is that the number of plasma extracellular vesicles is significantly increased. We know that there is an enrichment for extracellular vesicles, which are generated from endothelial cells. So those cells on the inside of the, the blood vessel, as they become activated, they release more extracellular vesicles and they package particular microRNAs with the spheres of these extracellular vesicles. And they also enrich proteins on the surface, which allows them to target immune cells, which are resident in the spleen and induce their mobilization from the spleen into peripheral blood. Yeah, because a bunch of researchers that I've spoken to aren't sure that the, uh, the EVs are targeted, but I mean, here you're showing an instance they are. Like in a mouse model, have you tried to culture them and see if that, uh, you know, if you inject a whole bunch of them, if you attract neutrophils in this cascade, whether the heart's damaged or not? So what we have done is if you take um, some endothelial cell extracellular vesicles in culture, and then what we're able to do is to inject those into an animal model, such as the mouse, and we're able to mobilize immune cells from the spleen into peripheral blood. And it's very rapid, it happens within two hours. And what we've identified more recently is that there are particular proteins on the surface of these endothelial cell-derived extracellular vesicles, which signal the mobilization. And then by getting rid, or genetically deleting that protein, we don't see the mobilization after. You mean you're altering the cells that produce the EVs so they can't package it into the, into the EVs? And they yes. can't signal that way? So we make uh, these cells uh, in culture which are deficient for our protein of interest. So we have these small biofactors producing exosomes either which contain our protein of interest or they're lacking their protein of interest. And then we can inject them into otherwise completely healthy animals. And we ask the question, do we get differences in the number of immune cells in peripheral blood. And you're seeing differences? And we're seeing differences. So we published a paper a couple of years ago where we took activated endothelial cell-derived extracellular vesicles and we were able to drive the movement of monocytes from the spleen into peripheral blood. Hmm. Oh, that's an important result. It was, uh, it, we had a, a hypothesis that extracellular vesicles, which are these lipid-packaged envelopes, may be signaling to the spleen because we've we and others have shown that the spleen is an important reserve of immune cells following myocardial infarction, following a heart attack. And if you, if you surgically take away the spleen in an animal and you do an experimental heart attack, you get 
a significant reduction in the amount of damage that happens following the infarct. Oh, does the heart heal at all or just uh, because it repairs itself less in the wrong way or what happens in those kind of animals? It's slightly more complicated. It depends on when you look. Um, so if you look immediately after, so 24 hours after you induce an experimental heart attack, you appear to have less damage because there's fewer immune cells now. So they're not, there's, if there's no spleen there, fewer cells in order to be recruited or infiltrating to the heart and then we appear to have less damage, as much as 75% less damage. And then what but happens look, as time goes on? As time goes on, what we actually notice is that there's defective healing, that you don't get healing of the myocardium or a proper process of repair. And so what we know from the immune cells is that, yes, they are causing some detrimental damage in the initial hours after you have a heart attack, but they're also essential to the repair process. And so as I mentioned earlier, where you have this pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory properties of these cells, they're able to do both. And so understanding what's controlling their switch is important therapeutically for us to modulate the immune response. What happens to the uh, EV production once uh, you know, spleen cells arrive? Does it change and go down over time where the heart says, okay, you know, we have enough now stop signaling the spleen? So in our human and in our animal studies, we noticed that the number of circulating plasma extracellular vesicles is elevated at 24 hours, and then it returns baseline levels. Well, it's probably not just a uh, 24 hours and then done. It must be getting signaling back. Maybe the spleen is, uh, you know, once the heart has been affected, the environment's been changed. There's a new signaling, I guess, to the spleen to say, slow down, don't send as much. Possibly. Uh, we haven't actually uh, looked at that. What we know is that the number of extracellular vesicles appears to return to, to resting levels, certainly in, in uh, animal models. Whether the composition of the extracellular vesicles remains altered two, three, four, five days after infarct remains unknown. Are you looking into it? We are, yes. So we've, we benefit here in Oxford by our clinical investigations where we have patients who come into to hospital for treatment of a, a heart attack and we're able to enroll these patients into a study called the Oxford Acute Myocardial Infarction Study or OXAMI and then we're able to follow the same patients uh, over a number of months, weeks or years uh, depending on which study they're taking part in. What's doing the, uh, what kind of cells are doing the initial signaling and then you know as the heart uh heals and goes through that process, do you think there's signaling happening from other parts of the heart? My primary focus has been to look at how the ischemic heart or how the injured heart is initially signaling to these immune cells. And so we know that the arterial system is blocked because that's where the blood vessel has ruptured or where you've got a clot, but the venous endothelium is still open. And the venous endothelium is in contact with the ischemic environment, which is low in oxygen, and there's cellular death occurring. And so we hypothesize that it's the venous endothelium, which is in very close proximity to the injured tissue, which is generating these extracellular vesicles, liberating them into peripheral blood, which allows them to communicate with these distal reserves of immune cells. Hmm, interesting. Um... So what's next for the research? You're going to see what happens in the uh, ensuing days afterwards. Uh, 
Um, are you able to characterize, again, the composition of the extracellular vesicles as well, not just the number, you know, the profile yes. of what's being put into them? So what we have done so far is to look at the number, the concentration, which we know is altered uh, in the immediate hours following a heart attack. And we know that the more extracellular vesicles that you have in your peripheral blood, the bigger the amount of damage that you get to, to your heart. And what we also know is that the proteins within the extracellular vesicles change and that the microRNAs change as well. We've identified 12 microRNAs that are significantly altered in plasma extracellular vesicles. And two of the lead microRNAs are actually endothelial cell associated. So this is why we think the endothelial cells are the predominant source of plasma extracellular vesicles following myocardial infarction. Okay. So what, uh, what would be some uh, big goals for you to achieve over the next year or two with the research? Where do you, what do you feel like you're close to figuring out? So what we have done is we've identified a, a protein on the, the surface of extracellular vesicles. It's called vascular cell adhesion molecule 1. It's what activated endothelial cells uh, decorate themselves with in order to attract immune cells. We've been able to show that it's present on these extracellular vesicles, that it becomes significantly enriched following a heart attack. And what we'd like to know is, can it be used as a diagnostic tool? Can we use the VCAM1 on extracellular vesicles to determine whether someone's going to have a big heart attack and a lot of injury, or, the, or whether their heart attack is going to be milder in nature. You mean before they have a heart attack or after? You're looking at the healing? No. Unfortunately, if we were able to predict whether they're going to have a heart attack, uh, I'd probably be sitting on a beach somewhere. But uh, <laughs> after, after they have uh, the heart attack, they come into the hospital. What we can't determine at the moment is how big that heart attack is going to be or whether that particular patient is going to heal well or heal poorly. We think that the VCAM1 on these extracellular vesicles might uh, be useful as a, as a diagnostic biomarker just to determine how big that heart attack is and to try and understand how the immune response is then co coordinated following the injury. So we've identified that the VCAM1 is essential in order to mobilize the immune cells from the, from the spleen. And so using that genetic approach where we delete the protein of interest in, in our cells in culture, if we delete VCAM1, we don't have it on the extracellular vesicles, and those extracellular vesicles then fail to mobilize the immune cells into peripheral blood. And we've also identified some microRNAs which are enriched in our patients following a heart attack. And we're looking in detail now at whether those microRNAs control how the immune cells behave. Is there any repository of blood samples from people um, once they're in hospital after having had a heart attack? Because if you're able to look at blood samples of, you know, let's say hundreds of patients, you can look for the presence of EV, EVs in them possibly if they were preserved and what the differences are, and then maybe correlate to the, that to the, uh, the extent of the heart attack. Yeah, so that's exactly what we do. So this uh, study that we have here in Oxford, the Oxami study, so this is a cohort of a couple of hundred patients uh, at the time that they're having the, the heart attack. And then we follow them up to see how their heart attack develops. Do they get a lot of scarring or do they get a little bit of scarring? And then we have serial blood samples from these patients over time. So for the, the two days that they spend in hospital as a receiving clinical therapy, we have blood samples or multiple blood samples over a number of hours where we're able to look at the change in the 
extracellular vesicle number and in the protein and microRNA content of these patients. How do you know how scarred the heart is? Do you do like an ultrasound, you know, immediately after and then later on to see the, uh, the pattern of how it beats and how it moves or how do you tell? Uh, we do an MRI. So in our patients, we use an MRI initially where we look at the water signals. So MRI is, is measuring, uh, can measure the amount of edema in the heart. And the edema is indicative of, of how big that infarct is. So we know that in our patients, if they have more circulating extracellular vesicles, they will have more of this edema or injury in the immediate hours, the immediate 24, 48 hours following the heart attack. And then six months later, when the patients are feeling better, we bring them back in for another MRI using something called late gadolinium enhancement, which gives us a measurement of how big the scar is in the heart. And there's a relationship between the amount of edema that we measured very early on, and then the amount of scar that we detected six months later in the same patients. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Naveed, uh, I think we're just about at a time. What's the, uh, the best way for people to find out more? And if they're, you know, in the area, maybe to you know, I, I don't know. How can they get in touch? So if uh, you'd like any more information, including uh, the latest work that's coming out from my group, if you search for my name uh, on Google, followed by uh, by Oxford, you'll, you'll see my staff profile. And there's a live feed on there in, in terms of the work that's coming out or the work that I'm contributing to. Okay, well, that's great. Louis, I'm glad to have met you and uh, to spoken to speak with you. So thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now. And the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.